Jesus tells an interesting little story. He's having a controversy uh, with people who are questioning by what power, by what authority, he casts out evil spirits. And he tells a strange little story. He says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a place to rest, and it finds none. And so then it says, I will return to my house from which I have come. When it comes, I find it empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Such a strange story. But I have understood it to mean something really pretty simple. We tend to think that when our lives uh, are rid of really doing bad things, when they're in order, that we are in good shape spiritually. But this suggests that spiritual emptiness leads to even more alienation, estrangement, and potential evil. That good is necessary in full presence to push out evil. So Jesus is saying, you know, it's not enough just to cast out unclean spirits. It's not good enough just to clean up your life and put things in order, you can still be really empty. What you need is the presence of goodness, not just the absence of evil. We are doing a sermon series on Sabbath and what Sabbath is. And I share this story because I want to suggest that Sabbath is an openness to experience the presence of God. Sabbath is the time when, in the words of the hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, where hearts like flowers open up before the presence of God. Life can be neat and orderly, but spiritual emptiness is a real hazard. Our scriptures for today are are two stories about the temple, and they're very different. Uh, the first, the psalm, is a psalm uh, that was written like a few others, uh, as if imagining the people who were uh, living far away from the Jewish homeland around Jerusalem. And they were making a pilgrimage, as they were uh, asked to do several times a year for special feasts. They were making a pilgrimage to the temple and the temple uh, was believed to be the place where the presence of God was most fully um, realized on earth. And um, the psalm has us walking with the pilgrims through a desert, dry land, starting to get dry and thirsty, and looking up in the distance and seeing the temple shining on the hill ahead, and imagining the welcome that will be there 
the fullness of the sense of God's presence. And then the psalmist says, somehow this experience of being in the temple, even imagining being there, of experiencing God's presence, creates a highway inside of me, a pathway for God's spirit to be with me. So it's, it's about the presence of God finding an opening as we go and anticipate going to church and being in the presence of God for worship. The second story about the temple is very different, and it's one of the more memorable stories about Jesus, is it not? And because I'm pretty sure some of you have heard it before, it's told in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John tells it with a very different point in mind. I maybe need to erase a little bit of what you've heard from the other gospel accounts that are echoing in your head. How many of you heard this story and hear the words of Jesus echoing in your minds? This place should be a place of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves or den of robbers. And that is a part of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke recount Jesus saying as he does the dramatic actions of cleansing the temple. And in that, they're revealing that, that they believe that Jesus is cleansing the temple of people who are engaging in corrupt and manipulative practices. Uh, but John is saying something a little different. But let me help you understand a bit about what was going on. Uh, the temple was a place where there were, according to the law, prescribed rituals that had been given as a method for people to express and mend their relationship with God. And those involved the mediation of animals who were offered as sacrifices for different purposes and according to one's means. And uh, those animals were the sheep, cattle, doves, kinds of things that you heard mentioned in the passage. Now, at people who were coming from a distance obviously could not walk a long way over days and as a practical matter, bring with them the animals for sacrifice. So they needed to be able to have them on hand so that they could fulfill their obligation and participate in the ritual practice that was prescribed by the law. They also, while they were there, uh, were asked to pay the temple tax, the things that helped maintain the worship space and the people who uh, were the leaders for the worship space. And that temple tax uh, could not be paid in coin that had the image of the emperor on it. And some of them would have been coming from places where their native coinage would be just that. So they had to do coin exchange to get the right kind of money to be able to do what was required for them by the law. And I suppose they had a bit of a monopoly on it, so that's why I'm sure from time to time that privilege was exploited 
by people who were trying to make a little extra money on the side. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Jesus is upset about, the exploitation of people who were just trying to fulfill their obligation and do the prescribed work of being in God's presence. But Jesus, in John's gospel, is looking at the matter very differently. In Jesus' uh, portrayal in John, he does not just get rid of the money changers and the sellers uh, because they were possibly doing some manipulative or exploitative things. In John's Gospel, actually the doves, the cattle, the sheep themselves are driven out of the temple. The money changing system is disrupted. And Jesus is doing it in a way that is expressing displeasure with the whole kind of transactional nature of people's connection to God. The temple was not meant for marketplace exchanges. That is not what brings people into the presence of God. And so he throws out the sacrificial animals. He turns over those tables. And the disciples say, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was trying to say, as we later see clearly by his prediction that the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He was talking about his death and resurrection. Jesus was making a claim for himself that he is the way to a relationship with God. That worship and being in relationship with God is more like being related to a person than it is like an exchange of goods, a transaction, which is really very different, isn't it? I need something from you, you need something from me, we do it for each other. And what do we have at the end of that? We have a completed transaction. I get to know you, you get to know me, we grow alike one another, what do we have? A relationship. Jesus was saying, a relationship with me starts to fill and create that presence of God in you, with you, which is what Sabbath and worship is for. Well, I was trying to think about this idea of worship and Sabbath as getting to know a person, and that's uh, but God, you know, is not physically present among us. How does that work? It seems so abstract in some ways. And then I got two images that really helped me uh, think about it, and I'm going to share them with you. The first one is, uh, Rick and I went to a, a symphony concert a, a few weeks ago that was one of the best I've ever heard. The, the violinist was absolutely incredible. And um, 
it was so captivating. And, and while the music was going on, as I usually do with music, my mind is busy uh, trying to capture the main themes and hear how they're repeated and listen for where it's popping up in different parts. And I'm trying to uh, focus on where the new themes are emerging. And it's a very active kind of process of listening. And I find that as much as I love uh, music and when I'm just enraptured by certain music, still and yet my very favorite part of the music is the silence that happens right when it ends. Because when that silence comes at the ending, my mind takes a halt and I savor. It's the only word I can think of. I savor what's come before. Some of it echoes in, but I don't work at it. I just breathe deeply and enjoy. And it doesn't have to be classical music like a symphony. I could say the same thing about Derek and the dominoes playing Layla. But it, there's something about, and that's why I don't like to hear people clap, and that's why, even especially when I oh, so love the choir music, I, I usually don't clap only because I love the savoring. And savoring is different than acting and clapping for me. I think that Sabbath is meant to be savoring, a savoring experience of the presence of God. Uh, how many of you journal? Some of you have journaled. Some of, the, some of the people I admire the most are people who journal. So I've thought, I will journal too, uh, even though I don't like to write. Um, and uh, I have not had great success with the experience of journaling, because Somehow, it just feels like me dribbling on the paper more and more, and it doesn't seem like a spiritual practice to me. So I've started it many times and put it aside. But uh, one time, for an extended period of time, and I've got to go back to it, I didn't worry about journaling. I just thought I'd try to keep a diary. And in that diary at the end of each day, I just took time to write down just things, random things from the day that delighted me, that surprised me, that concerned me, even things that worried me, but I just didn't try to make a prayer talking to God or anything. I just savored the day. And I have to tell you that that was one of the most spiritually productive things I've ever done. I think Sabbath is meant for us to have a time to savor, reflect, and think and enjoy. The other image that came to my mind is uh, from growing up. I, I, I tried to be a pianist for a long period of time. I practiced a lot. My parents sacrificed a lot for me to be able to do it. I, they uh, paid for lessons. They took me to uh, competitions. They went to recitals and listened. And, and probably the most painful of all, they listened to me practice for hours at a time. And practicing is not fun to listen to. Uh, my mom was the one who would more often kind of like help me debrief when I'd come out of a piano competition. How did the other people do? How did I do? What did I need to work on? This and that. And my dad was pretty much uh, uh, removed from that, although he came to the recitals. But every now and then, um, 
In the evening, he would come into the living room where the piano was, and he'd sit down on the couch, and he'd say to me, I want to hear a $10,000 concert, uh, which I took to mean uh, he, wanted, he wanted to have a sense of the reward for his investment. Uh, so I would approach playing that music very differently than any other time when I was at really playing at home or even when I was performing. For my dad, I wouldn't worry so much about playing things perfectly. I wouldn't like stop and go back if I made a mistake. I would take out a few things that I thought were pretty well in my grasp, and then I would just sit and try to make them as beautiful as possible, just for his enjoyment. And strangely enough, I think those are the times I most enjoyed playing myself. How many of you have thought about, you know, God wanting us to worship him and, and thinking that that's rather egocentric of God? I have at different times myself. But when I remembered my dad talking about getting his $10,000 concert, I thought, yeah, that's what it's like for God. God wants us to come and worship because God wants to experience hearing us share the beauty that we've been working on. And, you know, my dad's $10,000 was not just maybe what he'd put into lessons. I had the sense that when he said that, he was also saying that what I could give back was priceless to him. And it didn't have to be perfect. It was meant for beauty. I think that God wants us to do Sabbath the way my father wanted to hear the concert. And it, without words, because my dad would close his eyes and maybe sleep while he was listening, but at the end he'd just wake up or open his eyes and say, very fine, thank you. I think Sabbath is like that, and I believe it helps the presence of God grow in us and fill us up. An interesting thing about Jesus clearing the temple is that it happens in the Gospel of John at the beginning of his ministry, and it's located right after his first miracle. And that first miracle was changing water into wine so that a party, a celebration of communion at a wedding festival could go on together. The ancient rabbis sometimes talked about Sabbath as a bride that we're betrothed to. Sanctify the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Sanctify it. It's a similar word is used for being betrothed, making something holy. This is our opportunity to come and, no matter what's going on in our lives, to savor what has been going on around us throughout the week. It's not like God is only in here, but we savor it and we create an opening in our hearts 
and God's presence grows. And so I just want to tell you whether on a given Sunday you connect with the sermon's message or you uh, love the prayers or like the hymns, this is still your time to savor and to be shaped and to experience God's grace. And of course today when we come to the table to experience communion, that relationship, we are definitely taking Jesus up on the invitation. So may it be so for us. Amen.